0: Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. Today, I'm talking to Jane Gingrich, who is Associate Professor of Comparative Political Economy at the University of Oxford. Our conversation will be about the changing support coalition of social democratic parties, their current electoral crisis, and what all of this means for the welfare state. First, we focus on Jane's 2015 article, which is titled The Decline of the Working Class Vote, the Reconfiguration of the Welfare Support Coalition and Consequences for the Welfare State, and it's co-authored with Sida Heusemann. In this article, the authors show that the electoral support coalition for parties of the left increasingly consists of educated middle class voters. And they show how this affects the politics of the welfare state. The changing preferences of supporters of the left, however, do not simply mean less redistribution, but instead lead to a different type of welfare state. Jane and I will talk about these and other questions in the next 45 minutes. For more information about Jane and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under J.R. Gingrich or visit her website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Tarek. Thank you for having me.
0: So today we're going to talk about a joint paper of yours with Celia Hausermann in which you investigate the changing support coalition for social democratic parties, and also how this has affected developments of the welfare state. And later we'll ge- talk more generally about the development of social democratic parties and their current electoral crisis. But on the paper first, I just wanted to ask, what was your motivation for writing that paper? How did you get to writing it?
1: So this paper initially came out of um, an idea for a special issue that uh, was looking at, re- at revisiting the book Three Worlds Welf- of Welfare Capitalism by Espin Anderson in light of its 21st, uh, sorry 25th anniversary of publication. And- one of the questions that sulia and I had when we were thinking about sort of what um, how we reflected on this book, which had which had been incredibly influential for both of us, not only in thinking about how w- the welfare state operated, but of course how the politics of the welfare state were structured, was how much the sort of underlying um, politics of sort of the underlying coalitions of the left had altered in the in the time period. Um, from the the late nineteen eighties, when Esben Anderson was writing the book, to the mid two thousand tens, when we were engaging in this um, reflection, and yet, um, and partly due to the kind of dynamics that Esben Anderson theorized although not the not the sort of political mechanisms that he theorized um the welfare state in many ways remained quite resilient and this is not a, a kind of a novel insight really um clearly paul pearson and others that had been looking at the welfare state had been making these kinds of arguments for also for for now 2 3 decades um, but we thought that sort of bringing the question of these support coalitions and the way those coalitions had changed um not only in their class structure, but in the connection between the class structure and the voting patterns was worthwhile. And so that was our motivation initially for um looking at looking at this question in the in that, that particular paper.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess one major argument that Esping Anderson makes is that the the strength, the political strength of the working class channeled through unions and especially parties of the left is what shaped the welfare state than uh, in its outcomes, right?
1: Yes, and um, so Espen and Anderson, I think, is very much engaged in a debate that um, at the time we were writing seemed quite removed from the, mom- the moment we were writing in, although I think now it's actually in a way back in style, which was in the this question about sort of whether social democracy or all the sort of electoral path to socialism had been uh had really sort of sold out on so- socialist ideals and the power resource school makes this really powerful and important argument that um, the transformation of capitalist structures is possible via um, a democratic path. Um, but only when it operates in particular kinds of ways, which really look much more like the kind of Swedish social democracy circa um, that time period, not so much anymore. So the question then is: Okay, if you re- if you take this sort of class reading, of, so if you take this question about sort of the ability to use the ballot box and the sort of instruments that of policy that democratic processes allow for, seriously, what happens? when the the underlying class structure changes um, and the sort of then and its political manifestation changes. And that was really, I think, a question that was motivating sort of why we want to look at those voting patterns when we're reflecting on um, on the sort of broader arguments that Espin Anderson was making. Mm hmm.
0: And your core argument, the core idea in the paper, I would say, is then to say that the support coalition for social democratic parties has fundamentally changed in post-industrial societies.
1: Yeah, or for the left. Um, so the paper, we look at not just social democrats, and and we may come back to that a little bit more, more later, uh, but all kind of left parties together. Um, and subsequent work um, that I've done, we can see that actually these patterns look Somewhat different if you start disaggregating the left, but but um, yeah, it's the underlying support pattern has changed, and it's changed in uh, both a compositional sense, but also in a behavioral sense. And so, part of the change in the in the underlying structure of support for the left is uh, part just comes from changes in the underlying structure of of society. And so, the class structure has certainly become more complex. And the overall pattern has been towards um, an upgrading of the educational um, and occupational paths of citizens. And so in that regard, there's some kind of a mechanical effect that emerges um, as the, the numerical size of at least the traditional working class has shrunk. But Next to those kind of compositional effects, there are, have also been sort of massive behavioral changes in the way class groups um, vote, um, and in particular the sort of the rise of particular parts of the middle class that have become major constituencies uh, for not just social democratic parties but but increasingly the core constituency for green parties and some um, non-social democratic left parties. And so th- these things together mean that the, the kinds of people who are voting for um, parties that are pro-welfare have really changed um, over the last 30 to 40 years and have become much more middle class.
0: And can you tell me a little more about these people? So who are these people that are the new support coalitions of parties of the left?
1: Um, so... Th- uh, we know a lot about um, these voters, less from my own work than from uh, people like Celia Hauserman's work, Herbert Kitchell, uh, Philip Bram and others, Hans-Peter Crecy, that have really been looking at um, the sort of nature, the changing nature of the class structure but, and linking that to vote choices. But what we know and also what we look at a little bit in, in this is trying to sort of take at least the more recent data and disaggregate um, who these middle-class voters are. And many of them are um, public sector workers. And so uh, the public sector, in a sense, becomes a major kind of uh, resource for the left as the size of the state expands. Um, Public sector workers are often important constituents uh, both, and this is something that we don 't do in in the in the article, but it's but I should say it's not just an electoral constituency, but public sector unions are also very important um, in many places as supporters of social democratic or other left parties, um, but certainly the work the public sector workers, and then um, also uh, parts of the sort of um, surrounding types of jobs that may be in the public or the private sector. But that involve um, uh, relatively educated people in um, professional jobs that are um, service providing, so teachers, um, um, social workers, other kinds of uh, people in those kinds of those kinds of jobs. Though they're often likely to vote for parties on the left. Um, And there's a strong kind of urban-rural or urban gradient on this. And so these types of jobs tend to be located uh, more in urban areas. And uh, we also see that um, highly educated people in urban areas are often likely to vote for the left, although they, they split on that. So many are also voting for the moderate right.
0: So I guess we can, can summarize that the support coalition of social democratic parties structurally, has become more educated, more urban, more professional, but there are two elements to it. One is that society as a whole has become more educated, more urban, and so on. And then there's a second element where it's behavioral on the voter side and behavioral on the party side, and we still need to disentangle this, this to learn more. Um, but what we haven't talked about yet so much is, The preferences of these people, so the new support coalition, how do, how are their preferences different from uh, the earlier coalition, so the the strong working class support coalition?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a question that, um, that I think is a a huge, well, I think it's a huge question in which a lot of effort has been put into, uh, but there's still a number of unknowns. And so if we look at surveys, um, these voters are, um, tend to be uh, express a, a quite strong sort of traditional left preferences. And so in surveys, they're in favor of income redistribution. They express a willingness to pay um, taxes. They support um, some forms of government intervention in the economy, although um, uh, that can vary across the types of intervention um, proposed, there's some evidence that the, uh, that um, they're a little more supportive um, when push comes to shove of um, what we might label social investment type spending. So things like childcare, um, education, um, paid parental leaves, those types of programs, which enable people to develop skills and enter into the labor force. Um, when compared to uh more passive transfers like unemployment insurance and so on uh, but it should be said that even um those preferences um, are usually kind of the modal social democratic voter, even the modal kind of middle class social democratic voter at least in surveys says they like. Uh, unemployment insurance and uh, redistributive policies as well. And so the the, the expressed preference, the sort of preference for more social investment is often built on um, at least uh, a degree of support for the traditional social programs.
0: Okay, so they might not be as different as one might think in the first moment when we say social democratic support has become now much more middle class than it was before.
1: Yeah, or we, I think there's an aspect to which, and I think this is what some um, more recent work, which trying to, Celia Hauserman, uh, Marius Busemeyer and others who are trying to use um, different forms of survey techniques to, to tease out trade-offs are trying to get at, because the question is, when we look at surveys, um, survey respondents really say they want to support um many different kinds of social expenditure. And the question that um, is important when we're looking at how that translates into political action is to say, well, are they really willing to um, pay higher taxes for that? Is there a point at which these voters defect to moderate right parties, which maybe would have traditionally been their sort of political home or not? And I think that we can have some reason to say that um, there's a mix there. And so there's cases in which um, certainly um, urban middle-class voters have uh, been willing to switch, um, defect from social democratic or other left parties, but so too have other groups. Um and there is some, I think, willingness, at least to continue to support uh, parties on the left. And so this question of sort of how far um, the, having these voters within this support coalition for the left at really constrains um, the raising of taxes and so on, is something I think we still need. Well, we need maybe to see um, more evidence and potentially uh, more real-world examples of radical policies that will that will begin to give us a sense of sort of how steep these trade-offs are. Mm-hmm.
0: But in the paper, you make an argument about how it affects the welfare state, and you also present some evidence on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we we suggest in the paper that. Um, these voters are more in favor of social investment and that um, as a result, as the support coalition moves, the social democratic or other left parties will put more emphasis on things like, um, again, family support, parental leaves, um, child care, that type of policy than traditional unemployment insurance. And I think we see that um, over the last um, 30 years that there's been a real shift and not just in the sort of Anglo countries, but but in most countries, towards um, trimming back extensive unemployment insurance benefits and um, moving towards expanding um, some degree of benefits for families, um, support for women entering the labor force, and so on. And that, in part, follows from these these shifts um, in the in the coalition support coalition um, uh, of these of these parties. Mm
0: -hmm. I think it's very interesting because now very recently uh, Thomas Piketty in his new book makes an argument that's at least comparable I would say so what he argues is that the left the support group for the left has very much changed and has especially become more educated what he calls the the Brahmin left and his argument then is that this has meant that the that there's a new coalition that supports redistribution much less than before so basically the left as the support coalition for redistribution has changed and because because of this we are seeing increasing levels of economic inequality how would you say your work relates to this and do you agree with this diagnosis
1: yeah i mean i think it's i think it's complicated so i think the first thing to say is that Um, when we're thinking about redistribution is that it can take a number of forms. And so social investment spending can be highly redistributive. It cannot be redistributive, depends on how it's structured. The same can actually be said for um, more traditional social programs. Um, Some of them uh, were certainly in both the financing and in the spending side, more kind of progressive in their structures, or more redistributive in their effects. And so when we're looking at sort of what kinds of policies are possible when the when a core component of the left's electoral base are urban uh, middle class voters, um, we first need to sort of say, okay, so where where is the space for what what are the constraints, but what are the possibilities that those those um, voters put on the space for redistributive policies? And I would say that um, the these voters are often um, quite supportive of all sorts of policies that could be redistributive in a number of ways. So, like I said, they're supportive of education, uh, often quite supportive of education policies. And Piketty, in his book, makes an argument about um, some of the ways in which um, the sort of middle, the sort of left middle class might. Target education spending towards themselves, um, which I think is a is a really important and valuable uh, argument. But again, um, they may also be willing to pay higher taxes um, to support. A degree of investment in education, and we've also seen um, some fairly progressive movements, even in unusual places like um, expanding minimum wages, um, the fight for fifteen movement in the U.S., which has garnered support. Um, And I think what this adds up to is that there's particular forms of redistribution that you can imagine a kind of cross-class coalition um, emerging around, which often builds on. things that might sort of positively affect or or be very visible to these um, new middle class left voters. And those would be like the problems that urban areas face, t- transportation infrastructure, maybe in some cases housing, although that can be a wedge issue, uh, education, other things. Maybe where the redistribution is um, more limited and where these types of voters maybe le- really put some hard constraints on left parties is um, – forms of redistribution through things like industrial policy or other forms of policies that um, are moving resources from the sort of urban core out to peripheral areas um, or which are really seen as um, um, limiting aspects of markets, which are like things like consumer goods, which are very desirable to these kinds of voters. And so in the sort of simple idea that having middle class constituents in your base on the left um, forecloses the possibility of redistribution, I think is wrong. I think it probably um, makes certain kinds of policies more difficult and it may um, push in um, the direction of other kinds of policies that don 't always address the the needs of some um, uh, lower income constituents as well. It's worth saying also, though, that the counterfactual here is hard to imagine. Um, so, educated the high, the sort of university educated population in most countries is now thirty to forty percent of adults, um, and h- higher percentage of young adults. And so, having a st- sort of a strong core in in of um, educated voters in your political bases is almost an is going to be almost necessary in order to win any elections. And so the I think the real question is like if that is the core, what does what does it mean um, for lower income or lower educated voters not to have a political party that is um, explicitly built around them? And I think that. From a representat- representational perspective, we, um, that may be really significant, even if, in fact, in, in aspects of the sort of beliefs or behaviors, um, urban middle class or middle class voters um, are willing to support policies that may have redistributive effects. Hmm.
0: I, we'll definitely get back to the the electoral competition aspect of it, but maybe to stay for with the conf- consequences for a second. So I guess we can say that it is clear that the changing composition of the social democratic electorate has led and will lead, or the left more generally will lead to a change in the type of welfare state. And it's less clear to say if the consequences of this new type of welfare state are necessarily more or less redistributive. But I think it's also important then to ask the question, if the, old type of welfare state, the, the welfare state of the old left, would have been functional and would have been re- redistributive in changing political economic consequences anyway, right?
1: Exactly. And so if you look, if you think about the this, if we'd had this discussion 15 or 20 years ago, um, and you think about the sort of evolution of the literature in European comparative political economy and the role of the of the, um, left, the sort of work by, um, Carlos Bosch, David Rueda and so on was really looking at this question of sort of insider outsider divides and the, um, the sort of shortcomings of social democratic parties at addressing outsiders, not because they were beholden to kind of urban middle-class professionals or public sector workers, but because, um, uh, in fact, they were, potentially overly responsive to the um, demands of their traditional constituents um, in the uh, the working class or or the um, you know the manufacturing sector um, and so the those poly, those sets of pol that literature didn't come from nowhere it came from a real concern I think in the in the late 90s and 2000s about the, the evolving nature of low paid work, of um, insecure temporary contracts, um, of um, highly regulated labor markets that created very uneven access to both social programs and um, secure, uh, employment and the ways in which, um, some of these programs may, or attention to sort of those traditional programs may have been crowding out at particular points in time. Um, in fact, some of the investments and skills, um, and, and capacities of, uh, young people that would be necessary to, uh, to sort of meet, um, changing changing currents in the glo- in the both local and global labor markets. And so the old the sort of traditional policies um, were built, f- if we go back to SBN and Anderson, we go back to the sort of power resource, they were built to in s- to some regards to give workers security, to give them bargaining power in a labor market that looks very different than the one in which we inhabit. Um, now, I think that thinking led into um, the, the desire to sort of see an eclipse of some of those programs and say, okay, like we can just deregulate aspects of the labor market, but we can solve, we can make sure that we're, we're still solving some of the problems in it and dealing with the, with the needs of uh, low income people via other mechanisms. And so the rise of kind of some of this thinking about conditionality, tax credits, targeted forms of redistribution that emerges in the 2000s. And I don't think that those kinds of policies necessarily um, had the effects that um, proponents wanted. But I I think the idea that sort of um, that the sort of existing welfare state could have just um, well, the existing welfare state was increasingly leaving many people out uh, of the safety net, and it did need some changes. Now, those could have gone potentially in a more inclusive direction within the existing structure, um, rather than sort of moving towards um, some of the cutbacks that occurred um, in the in the nineties and two thousands. But but I don't think the sort of do nothing policy, either from a policy perspective or from a, a political electoral perspective, was really a viable one for, for really any social democratic party. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're also working on a new book project. And I feel we are already talking about a lot of questions that are really center stage in this new book project. So maybe you want to talk tell me about or idea of the book, and then we can talk about certain aspects of it that very much relate to the questions that we've just been discussing.
1: Yeah, so this book project is um, one of, I think, many that pe- probably uh, the people you're interviewing for this podcast um, are all trying to grapple with, which is sort of the decline of social democracy as a, not just an electoral force, but what seems to be, I think, in many cases, a worrying sort of fragmentation of um aspects of the political space um in ways that maybe I think there's a sort of malaise at the current moment about sort of our ability to kind of create coal solid solidaristic coalitions. And um, what or what that would even mean in the current moment. So the, where my kind of slice of this, um, it, it, where I want to sort of come in on this is to really think seriously about sort of what the reorientation in in uh, social democratic parties in particular meant during the kind of third way period and what kinds of policies they engaged with. And the book wants to make kind of two, I think, arguments. The first is that. Um, really social Democrats were genuinely facing constraints in the nineties and two thousands that led them to, to, uh, much of sort of the programmatic reorientation that we associate with the third way. Um, there's often, a, I, and I, that's not to discount a kind of an ideal ideational reorientation that people like Stephanie Mudge and others, um, look at, I think that, That work is incredibly important at sort of looking at the way in which much of this sort of expertise and the way in which kind of groups around social democrats began to sort of shift the way they were approaching problems. But I think there is also, there was, the book argues that, you know, many of the policies that they had developed in the sort of um, the, the social democratic golden age weren't really achieving either the sort of electoral or the policy aims um, that they had been constructed to, and there was a kind of a necess- at least a degree of a necessary reorientation in approach. And the third way comes out of that. Now, the, the claim there isn't that the third way was was sort of inevitable, or what, or it was the only way that these problems could have been approached. But but it 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 did in some sense emerge as a solution that seemed at the time quite workable in terms of attracting voters. And introducing some policies that attempted to address some of the inequalities of um, changing post-industrial labor markets, but the policies used to to do that, um, and I think this is important because there's an argument out there that sort of this was just sort of repackaged neoliberalism, and I and. I think there's aspects that are true about that, but even if you look if you look at sort of the places where these policies were most developed, and I think Blair, New Labour under Blair was probably the the key example here. Is there was a substantial redistribution of resources and a build up of um the capacity of the state in a number of public services under the um 13 years of Labour government in the UK. And so um, the um, there's just a dramatic expansion of the number of kids that um, completed um, schooling with a degree, with a qualification. I mean, really going from like third, you know, under fifty percent to close to eighty percent by the end of that time period. Child poverty uh, fell fairly substantially, not as substantially as, as one would hope, but but still there was a, a pretty dramatic reduction, um, and. Uh, the pay of public sector workers increased, the capacity of hospitals and schools and so on. Now, this came with the substantial privatization around the edges of these services, um, but there was still some some important, I think, distributive consequences that I think broadly we would describe as left-wing. Um, that said, New Labour clearly didn't transform British capitalism. So you have this this question of like, how do you evaluate that legacy from the perspective of um, a social democratic party? And I think, and on the one hand, you know, the policies were very successful um, at um, redistributing aspects of resources and bringing attention to the welfare state. On the other hand, um, when Labour lost in two thousand ten. Um, the conservatives very quickly clawed most of them back and child poverty has gone up to the level it was at, in 1997. Um, you know, there's been a, a degree of underfunding of core public services. And so the, these policies didn't sort of sustain themselves in the, in the long run in ways that we might think the sort of post-war Social Democratic Compromise um, in which the welfare state was built really had these longer-run effects. So what the book tries to understand is sort of, it, I suppose it's a sympathetic reason, reading of the third way and what the, the sort of problems that emerged around it, but trying to take these policies seriously and then say sort of, like why did they have no, no real kind of longevity at reorienting um, the welfare state into this sort of social investment state that um, was much more enabling in the way that their kind of rhetoric, suppose. And in doing that, what I really want to do in the book is sort of go under the hood of these, of sort of trying to define what these core policies were, looking at education, at tax credits and kind of technic, what I call technocratic redistribution, and then at the attention to public services to the near exclusion of other parts of the state, including sort of industrial policy, corporate governance, and so on, and say that this kind of constellation of um, approaches really led to a, um, a, a much more sort of a set of policies that had some effect, but they were much more short-lived in terms of the way the way they actually operated.
0: So, on the one hand, in the in the project, you're looking at these policies within these socio-structural and economic contexts of the time, and try to evaluate right this old question of are third-way policies. A product, a necessary product and adaptation of the time, or should they really be seen as part of a nearly neoliberal agenda? And I think your answer just told me, okay, you're you're more in the in the in the first camp and seeing them in the in the in their structural role. But then you go ahead, right, and ask how these policies and the changes of the third way period affect the electoral decline that we've now seen of social democratic parties, especially there's a narrative around that we have that argues that really the decline the that we're seeing at the moment can be directly linked to these policies, right? The narrative goes a bit that social democratic parties have passed these centrist neoliberal policies and because of them, the working class has abandoned them for other parties, and because of this, we're seeing the decline of social democratic parties, basically because they're not the left anymore.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I both agree and disagree with that narrative. So I think the places that I agree with it um, have to do with the representative side of social democrats. So I think that people who, like Tom or Grady or um, Despina Alexiadu, who are pointing out the... Um, Nick Carnes and others who are really pointing out that um, the people whom um, Social Democrats that there's been a, a shift or or there's yes, there's been a shift in the sort of language and in the um, personnel of these parties that in ways has become very unrepresentative of, of whatever definition of the working class that we want to have. Um, so there's clearly the working class has changed enormously over the years, but however we define it is probably not being represented to some extent in, um, in most contemporary left, left of center parties. Where I think I disagree is to sort of say that nothing that these parties did over the last 30 years mattered at all for the bottom half of the income distribution. So when we look at – so if you look at, say, the British example again – it absolutely did matter over the last two decades whether the Conservatives or the Labor Party was in power for people in the sort of lower third of the income distribution. There was a real expansion of benefits, really for families. Um, so less maybe it maybe that argument holds a little more for the sort of childless adults. Um, But for families, at least, there was a real expansion of benefits um, and services in the 2000s, and which were quite dramatically retrenched over the last decade. And for public sector workers, it probably also matters fairly substantially. Um, And so, the the um, so I think there were missteps both in policy and in and in rhetoric and in packaging of policies. but I don't think that the social Democrats of the 90s and 2000s uh, were irrelevant in a policy sense. And and so the question is sort of why, one question might be why they didn't do more. And I think that's a really important question. Um, and were they really as constrained by their voters as they potentially, they, as they thought they were? Um, and that's where maybe these ideational Arguments hold a, hold a, a important sway. That there was a perception that taxes couldn't be raised that might have been more real than the than the actual um, electoral limits of that. Um, but I think that that it discounts some important policies and some important. Um, differences among parties that continue to exist even within a political space in which those differences don't don't always aren't always perceived. I guess I would say a third thing, which is that, and this is an argument that Celia and I do make in that twenty fifteen article that we started out with, which just to say Look, if if some of your ideas are adopted, if you're on the left and some of your ideas are adopted on the right, that can narrow differences between political parties and make it seem like there's no no difference. But that also is a sign that you won an argument in and institutionalized it in an important way. And so I'm not sure that we should always look for the presence of ideational differences. As the core um, marker of success, and certainly the arguments about neo-liberal alternatives wouldn't suggest that. And so, the question then, when we're thinking about policies, we need to think, okay, so where were there places where the left kind of won the argument, um, and and. We know the places were the right one, the argument that there were lots, like lots of them. Um, and that's part of this whole critique. And so I think that that's why attention to policy um, and not, and attention to sort of the distributive effects of that policy, those policies really remain important. And and he, that's where I'd say that the, that the differences, the distributive effects of policies and the longevity weren't always pushing in the same direction during this period. And so I think the left was able to do some things that were actually good for their constituents. They were less able, I think, to really entrench those. And understanding that and why that differed from sort of past eras is um, important.
0: And Then you also continue and look at the electoral consequences of these reforms and these policies are generally the uh, electoral developments of the support coalition of social democratic parties. And I think you look at two things that are very interesting. And the first is, where do these voters go? But then also regionally, what types of voters leave social democratic parties for what other types of parties? Um, Can you tell me a little more about this?
1: Yeah. So the um, so first of all, to take the regional um, the regional divide. So one of the challenges that social democrats face is that they're really um, they're really in two very different competitive environments across regions, and this is not just the case in majoritarian systems, although the electoral system enhances it in majoritarian systems. In cities, they are in competition with green parties and moderate right parties. Um, And so um, when social democrats lose votes in high educated areas, we see that the kind of beneficiaries are green parties, and moderate right parties. And we can also see that high education voters when they defect from social democratic parties, and this would be measured in sort of using a kind of a recall from the last election, is there they kind of split between going to an, a different party on the on the left, so a, a green or a moderate or a, a non-social democratic left party, and the moderate right. So, with both in those individual voters and or, and voters more generally in urban areas, that's the competitive environment. When we move out of um, urban areas into suburbs um, and um, towns and and rural areas, there the moderate. Um, social democrats are in competition to a greater extent with um, both the moderate right again, but also right populist parties. Now, right populist parties do in some countries have a strong urban base. So this isn't a totally universal set of claims. But um, overall, you can see that it, it plays out very differently. And so if you look at a place like Denmark, Um, The Social Democrats there have lost a huge amount of support in Copenhagen, and the big beneficiaries of that have been um, left parties, whereas in rural areas, um, the... um, Social Democrats have either have maintained more support, but they're also in competition more with um, populist parties. And and that dynamic means that that you have a single party that used to mobilize both cross a little bit cross class, but also cross place. And that's increasingly difficult because you have a competitive environment in which the these appeals are facing very different um uh, challengers in geographic areas. The same thing when you look at the kind of at the individual level, and so voters that defect from social democrats, um, and I think your work shows this as well, to, um, is that they're not the, in general, they're not the disaffected left. They tend to be more moderate voters, but the places that they go can really vary um, across across different types of voters. And so, again, higher educated people tend not to defect to the populace, right? They go to the, either the moderate or the, um, to the uh, le- the uh, non-social democratic left. Low education people are just much, much more likely to, to defect into abstention. Um, and that's a much bigger effect than going to the populace, right, uh, by an order of magnitude. Now, there is some evidence, like uh, work by Evans and Tilly and others that, that suggests that they... That abstention may be a kind of a pass-through status. So they may these voters may abstain for one or two elections, and then they may move um, to another party, whether the moderate right or the uh, populist right or or another party on the left. But certainly, this for the for lower educated pe- people, this is um, they're much more likely than the higher educated voters to go into abstention. So what does that suggest? Um, I think it suggests that probably uh, two things. One is about the sort of um, limitations that the current moment imposes on social Democrats in the, in the sense that they are facing an incredibly challenging um, environment in which they're trying to hold together coalitions in which people are defecting in very different directions across places. And doing that with a singular appeal is, is difficult. Um, but it also suggests that patterns of mobilization and this is something that parties do do have control over can really matter and so if if voters are in cities are being mobilized in very different ways than outside of cities, or if abstention is a major threat, which it is I think among um, um, especially lower lower educated voters um, mobilizing these people and creating structures that mobilize them. Is, in, is still a very important thing for the electoral success of social Democrats. Um, and I think that's probably something that, um, and it's certainly something that they really, that one of the kind of great um, mistakes of the third way, which I would say here, I am willing to use that kind of language is an underinvestment in these mobilization structures. And so there was this idea, I think, among some third way politicians that sort of more nationalized policies um, and these sort of pro- programmatic appeals that could be kind of um, done by a, a kind of a leaner party structure, um, that these could substitutes for more traditional forms of mobilization. And here, I think we're seeing some of the real consequences of that when it comes to thinking about um, just getting out the vote and maintaining links with the community in ways that are sort of um, are allowing people to feel um, a part of the party and sort of become stable voters for it.
0: What is interesting about these uh, this focus on mobilization and abstention is that it potentially also shows a way forward for social democratic parties. Because I feel that in the in the positional dile- and structural dilemma, it really is if they're losing voters to the left libertarians in cities, and on the other hand, they're losing voters to... The radical right, voters to the radical right, then there doesn't really seem to be a way forward. But your focus on now on, on, on abstention and mobilization would suggest that maybe there is something that social democratic parties can do.
1: Yeah, I think so. I would say two things to that. So there's a kind of an optimistic and a pessimistic take. So the one hand is I think what we've seen um, in the post-financial, this is the pessimistic side, um, the post-financial crisis um, is that really there was a softening of support, of underlying sort of party identification and sort of loyalty, I guess you could say, in, a, in the more American sense of thinking about party identification to a particular party in, um, among many Social Democratic Party voters that had been occurring already for one or uh maybe even two decades, and that we do see just a lot of voters that were willing to defect once um these parties uh were seen as as um just not attractive to voters, and so rebuilding that kind of um identification that these parties had um, among sort of large groups of voters is going to be difficult and a long a long standing process. But I think you're right that and I think the more optimistic take is that there's lots of voters that um, view Social Democrats as a Favorably, um, and I think this actually Celia Hauserman has uh, some work on this, and so do others that look at kind of people's second choice or parties that they would be willing to vote for. And there's a lot of favorability towards Social Democrats, um, and and there's many abstainers that I think are within that group, and so there, I think there's a potential coalition out there that could be mobilized now. In ter- so social Democrats, I think, have the possibility of an electoral renaissance. What I think is maybe more worrying, and this veers back to the p- pessimistic take, is that social democracy as a political force was never just about winning elections. It always was a kind of a, a way of, of thinking about, I think, mobilizing a broader kind of political compromise between voters and market systems in the broadest sense. Um, And I think uh, where you have kind of parts of the left very split off into different political parties, where you have cross-class coalitions that are very unstable and in which groups are constantly kind of able to defect um, or willing to defect, it doesn't sort of replicate in the current moment that kind of idea of a compromise um, in a sort of stable sense that I think the sort of traditional idea of social democracy was aiming towards. And and we're looking at um, uh, not just labor markets, financial markets, capital markets, and so on, increasing sort of volatility as the financial crisis, as the current pandemic are showing. Um, and so having um, the sort of traditional kind of party of mobilizing um, the sort of working class as well as parts of the middle class and making demands for a more sort of just market system be in this sort of electorally precarious um, and sort of socially precarious situation, I think... Is a matter that gives, I think it's a very different, a different way of viewing these political parties, even if I, if, um, the data suggests that, you know, as you suggest, as you ask that there, there's a degree of electoral viability there.
0: Jane we're already coming to an end of the podcast there's one final question that I'm asking all uh, guests on the podcast and this is of course because we're recording this in in, in times of uh, corona mandated isolation and the question I'm asking everyone is for reading recommendations and so based, I'm not only asking one of you but because of our isolation even two and my question would be two reading recommendations one by an academic, an academic piece, and the other would be a non-academic, maybe fiction or something else uh, as a second recommendation.
1: Oh, my goodness. That's a hard question. Okay, so academically, um, probably most people that listen to this podcast have read this, but um, Stephanie Mudge's Reinventing Leftism is just, on this topic, It's just such a fantastic book. um, And I think just a must read. A work of fiction. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I guess the most... I'll just tell you the most recent book that I've read, which I loved, which was called Disappearing Earth. Um, And it's set in the Kamachka Peninsula, I think, is how you say it, in Russia. Um, And it's sort of a series of stories that all connect um, from the perspective of women... um, Uh, that's built around this sort of disappearance or kidnapping of these two girls. And it's, I I just thought it was a fantastic work of fiction. So a must read (laughs) by Julia Phillips.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Really thanks for being on the, on this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening.